Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor here at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. And please do pay attention to the men behind the curtain. Oh, boy. We're in uh, uh, our new digs. Oh, yes, our brand new studio has been completed. Yes, and uh, and now there's a curtain separating us from Jerry, so we can't see when she's you know surfing Facebook or whatever. She can do whatever she likes, and we'll be back here in our own little room. In fact, she might not even be in there anymore. We don't know. <laughs> All right then. But, well, we should we should we should go ahead and get started then. Yes, let's do that. Uh, actually, uh, we are recording this um, just before I am about to leave the office to go catch an, uh, a flight. So if we talk quickly, that's why because I need to go and get on. On a plane. <laughs> uh, but we're going to talk about DRM or digital rights management and exactly what it is and why some people are really against the whole idea in the first place. Uh, but 
to really talk about DRM, we kind of have to step back and just talk about uh, copy protection in general. Yes, uh, because, um, well, actually, before we even really get into that, I'd just like to point something out. Um, that digital rights management is is supposed to be about uh, who owns what, essentially. And, uh, you know, if you buy a, a program off the shelf... Take it home and put it on your computer. The, uh, the people who make it basically want to ensure that they can't, you know, that you can't make as many copies as you want and give them to all your friends, thereby they only sold one copy of this software. Well, the thing is, though, there are a lot of other digital rights involved, uh, including yours. You have di- uh, rights to that software. So uh, it should be pointed out that copy protection is only one part of the digital rights spectrum. And, you know, digital rights management sort of has a bad name simply because of that. And that's why people are so upset, because they view it simply as copy protection. But we can, we can get into that a little bit later. We should just go ahead and get into copy protection. Right? Yeah, let's talk about copy protection, then we'll we'll work our way into why some people feel DRM is far too restrictive, and that it goes well beyond copy protection to the point where it can actually uh, ruin your your experience as a customer. But we'll we'll sure we'll really sure. dive into that. So copy protection is pretty much self-explanatory. It's a method of protecting a work from being copied illegally and distributed uh, beyond the uh, rights holder's um, uh, uh, scope, right? So right. Uh, in the olden days, way, way, <laughs> way, way back when, uh, copy protection really wasn't that important. And uh, for instance, a book. Mm-hmm. If I were to publish a really long book, it would be difficult for anyone else to make a copy of that book without going to great lengths and using a lot of time and effort to do so. Yes, as a matter of fact, that's uh, that's a big reason why it wasn't an issue. People, the, the publishers really just simply were not concerned right. that people were going to run out and copy these things by hand. And what are they going? You would either have to write it down longhand, or you would have to create, you know, build a printing press and and copy it that way, or uh, eventually you get to the point where you can mimeograph or zero. Pages, but even then, you're doing it page by page. It was such a, a, a laborious and uh, an unrewarding task, especially if something went wrong in the middle of it. You'd have to stop and fix everything to continue. Um, it really wasn't an issue. You know, it's very few people were going to take that kind of time and effort to copy someone else's work. That's right. But now let's let's move ahead and go toward. Uh, well, you know, we we could even talk about things like the cassette tape business and how that was a big issue. As a, as was VHS, um, anything that allowed a customer to to put something that was. Uh, uh, published in one medium and then transfer it to another medium was met with a great amount of resistance in the various entertainment industries. That's right. Um, as a matter of fact, if you, if you really think about it, it's the advent of electronic technology that would allow you to copy something that really made it an issue. There's there's a mention of it in the Constitution, I believe, uh, a very, very simple mention. Uh, of copyright and it's it's a very vague sense and the thing is they didn't have to worry about it but then in the 20th century not only do you have things like cassette tapes and uh, VCRs you've got uh, uh, photocopiers Right. You've got facsimile machines. And suddenly, uh, you know, Congress is having to deal with 
a number of different pieces of legislation uh, coming from different companies going, hey, wait a minute, people are making lots and lots of copies of our work. And, you know, hey, we did a lot of work on this thing. We don't want people just running off with it. So, you know, you have to write some laws to protect that. But the thing is, even though there are laws in place, as uh, someone has said to me on more than one occasion, it's only illegal if you get caught. Right. So the thing is, you've got all this technology, but if you never get caught doing it, you can still duplicate it at will. Yeah. And on top of that, um, beside the fact that it suddenly become easy to start making copies or at least relatively easy to make copies of uh, material that did not belong to you. Uh, there's also the concept of fair use, which all, which clouds things up considerably. Well, it's cloudy in and of itself. Right. Fair use itself is not is not specifically defined. It is it is vague on purpose, and it ends up being an issue that ends up, that that's decided on a case by case basis. But in general. Things that are considered fair use are if you are uh, taking some material in order to comment upon it, to to provide some sort of insightful commentary that is outside the scope of the original material, then you could present some of that original material, although the definition of how much you can present is not uh, again, that's not really defined. So, is it all right to to take a co- a paragraph out of a, a previously published work and then comment on it? Maybe. What about twenty pages? Well, maybe not. Uh, the problem is that it's not very well defined. If you uh, if you took a line from a haiku, that's a third of it, essentially. Okay, fine. Well, yeah. no, that but that is the point. It it really it really does depend on how much of the material you're taking from it. If you're taking it from, say, the Odyssey, well, that isn't in copyright, but it's something that size, right? Um, and you're taking two pages of it. Well, that's all, all things considered, that's a pretty small p- amount of it. Another thing that is important to consider is how transformative it is. Well. And another issue of fair use is not just if you are transforming something or if you are commenting upon something. Right. It's also the idea of being able to create a backup copy of something for your own use. Right. Now, this is another part that comes into play with digital rights management in, a, in just a little bit. So the the idea here is that if you were to uh, to purchase something, like let's say you back in the seventies, you bought a vinyl record, and then you know in the eighties you got some cassettes, and you think, oh, you know what? I'm gonna make a copy of that vinyl record on cassette for my own use mm-hmm. to archive. So if anything does happen to that record, I still have the music. I don't have to go and purchase it again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That is okay. You can do that. You can actually make a backup copy of something in order to, if the only purpose is so that you can have it in case something happens to the original. Uh, you, you know, you can't go and distribute it. You know, it's not supposed. You're not supposed to do something like transfer that record to cassette tape and then start selling those cassette tapes out of the trunk of your car. No, um, that would not be. Uh, uh, covered under fair use, and you could be prosecuted for a copyright violation under those rules. But the, the digital rights management uh, manages to circumvent the whole notion of fair use. So let's let's kind of sort of segue into digital rights management now. Before, when we're talking about cassettes and and tapes and that kind of thing, um, there's still a level of effort that you needed to put forth in order to really make a copy. Mm-hmm. When we get into the digital realm. That effort is reduced dramatically. In some cases, all you have to do is click a couple of buttons on your computer and you've just made a copy of a file. And that's all you need to do. Uh, 
there was no effort really there. And because you're not taking a physical uh, uh, format, you're not taking like a, a, a record or a disc or whatever, you're just taking a, a digital file, it doesn't even feel like stealing. Because you're not you're not taking a physical object. You're not you know you can't you can't compare it to say uh, shoplifting. Because right. if I go into a music store and I shoplift and I steal a CD, not only have I taken something that doesn't belong to me and I haven't paid for it, but the shopkeeper can no longer sell that individual CD. Clearly, right? Because it's right. not no longer in the shop's possession. So the shopkeeper has uh, spent the money on buying that item. But will not be compensated for that because it is no longer in the shopkeeper's possession. Right. Now, with digital copies, you can sell a digital copy, copy rather, without any sort of physical medium at all. Mm-hmm. So, if I were to copy something, let's say that Chris's uh, uh, Chris's band has got their album out in a digital format. And I decide I want to listen to that, but I also decide that I don't want to pay for it. And I go and I copy that digital format. Well, you could argue, well, yeah, but Chris, Chris didn't lose anything. He can still sell that digital copy to whomever wants it. It's not like uh, I took the only instance of that. I made a copy of it. However, I have denied him that that sale. So there is still an element of theft here. Mm-hmm. Now, this is what kind of pushed various uh, entertainment industry companies into backing the whole idea of digital rights management. They wanted a way to control their product so that people could not easily make copies and distribute them. And beyond that, they even wanted to kind of control how you experience that particular product. Right. And uh, copy protection was the very first version of uh, digital rights management because it, it was, in essence, the, the root of what they wanted to accomplish by by doing that. Um, now, the thing is, um, there have been a variety of different ways of doing uh, copy protection. Uh, and I'm going to mention one of Jonathan's favorite words. Um, uh, some of the earliest that I encountered was, you know, I would buy a copy of uh, a program for my Amiga, and I would, you know, load it on on the computer, and it would say, "You need to insert your dongle," and this was a little piece of hardware that plugged into one of the ports on the side of the machine, and if you didn't have the dongle attached to the side of the machine, and uh, the software could not detect it was there, basically the program would not run. Right, uh, a very effective piece of uh, copy protection, I'd say, but uh, kind of impractical if you happen to lose that uh, little dongle. Right, right. Or if something were to happen to the port, for example. Exactly. If, if the if, port goes dead, then then you have to have your computer fixed before you can run that program again. Right, and then you start thinking, well, now you've created a copy protection that is dependent upon a couple of different factors, some of which are beyond my control, necess- you know, possibly beyond my control at any rate. Um, but I've paid money to access this. So this is the, the key to the people who oppose digital rights management. That's, that's the key to their argument is that DRM, the, the copy protection element of DRM really hurts the, the legitimate consumer more than it hurts the prospective pirate. And the idea that, you know, the person who actually buys the product, uh, ends up having his or her experience impacted by this DRM. And, uh, the people who want to steal the content will find a way to steal it no matter what kind of, of, uh, block you put there. Um, really the, the whole purpose of the, the block being there you could argue is not to to prevent someone from stealing, but to provide the legal basis to pursue that person in court 
uh, once they do find a way to get around it. You have a point. Yeah, it's kind of it's 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 interesting because when you think about it, DRM is it's like um, it's like you put a uh, a lock on your door, but you put a lock that's not impossible to to it's not impossible to pick that lock, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason you put the lock on the door is not in order to make sure no one can ever get in. It's to make sure that anyone who does get in who doesn't have a key can be prosecuted. Right. And and that's kind of uh, – but then you're also saying that anyone who legitimately has a reason to come into the house uh, always has to have that key with them because the door is never going to be unlocked. Right. So if that person loses the key, that's kind of tough. They're going to have to go and buy another key. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, Kind of a, a roundabout way of getting at this, but uh, another another early version of copy protection yes would require that you have uh, the idea being that if you purchase a game, for example, a, a, a computer game, uh, the idea being if you actually legitimately purchase it, you would have the game and you would have whatever documentation came with the game. Yes. So a lot of these games would have a section where they would ask you a question that would be answered within the documentation. Yes. Turn to page 17 and tell us what the third word is in the second paragraph. And I even had some of these uh, manuals printed on dark blue paper. The idea, of course, being that you would not be able to, uh, photocopy. to photocopy it. It would all just come out as a black sheet if you tried to photocopy these um, these pages. Now, people got around that, too, because there's only so many questions you would be able to create to, to for this copy protection. It's not like the entire manual would be in the game um, copy protection. So once people figured out what the questions were, they would just circulate that. So you right. would still be able to get around the game. Um, there are also other physical forms of copy protection where uh, uh, by physically changing the disk, and this is back in the uh, five and a quarter inch floppy disk days, mm-hmm. uh, by physically changing that disk, you could make it hard to make a copy. Mm-hmm. Like that, ju- that function would not be available, but you could get around that too. Right. If you knew how. And that's really another issue with the, the, the whole DRM is just the idea that if you really want to get around DRM, you can find a way to get around it. Right, right. So really the only people who get affected are the average consumers who don't know better. Yeah, the uh, the manual version that you were speaking of just a moment ago is the kind of thing that would discourage probably the casual uh, software duplicator. You know? Right. Um, Steve down the street who wants to to uh, make a copy for his buddy. He's like, oh, man, well, you Assuming know, I can't. Steve's last name isn't Jobs or Wozniak. I just wanted to pick something other than Bob. I usually say Bob, but it just makes me think of Microsoft Bob. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's going to get us emails. Just a mention of Microsoft Bob. Anyhow, we should do a podcast on that. Yeah. Um, it'll be like two minutes long. Um, anyhow, no the uh, the whole thing is that that's the kind of thing that would discourage probably the casual, the more casual. Um, a person from duplicating the software, but uh, it, it eventually evolved to the point where it actually had a layer of uh, software encryption on it. And of course, people were cracking that, as Jonathan said. And, you know, people really wanted to get around it; they could do that. Um, that's what we did our podcast on Usenet. The Wares channels are basically uh, software that has been cracked, where the, the copy protection has been removed or disabled on it. Um, and uh, you know, that that's a little bit different uh, because once that that's disabled, you can actually just generally use it. Of course, sometimes disabling the copy protection will damage the software in the process. Um, more modern efforts have gone to using the uh, software key. Like if you 
for example, bought a copy of Microsoft Windows. It's got, um, I think, a 16-digit, or is it longer than that now? It's longer than that now. Uh, like an encryption key that comes along with it. Once you plug that in and the software is registered online, no one else is going to be able to use that key on another computer. So, you know, if you, say, bought a copy of Windows, you used the key and you gave it to a friend down the street, um, he or she is going to have to find another uh, legitimate key, which is generated by an algorithm. So if you just make up letters and numbers, it's not going to work. Right. Well, probably not going to work. Yeah. Well, the um, odds of it working are at least astronomical. A, at least immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I spent 16 hours trying to – anyway. Um so, but that that actually comes into uh, into conflict with another right that is legitimately yours, which is the right of first sale. Right. Yeah, the right of first sale says that if you purchase something, you have the right to sell that again uh, further down the road because that property is yours. You have purchased it from someone. It be- it belongs to you, so then you can dispose of it as you see fit. So, for example, if you buy a car and you've paid for the car, the car's completely paid off, it's well within your rights to sell that car to whomever you like. Yeah, or, or, or use video game stores. Pr- right. Use video game stores mm-hmm. as another good example. So the problem about DRM is that it can get it can interfere with your right to sell something that you've purchased. For example, if I purchase a uh, an MP3 uh, from from some store that has DRM attached to that MP3, uh-huh. how do I sell? Let, let's say that I, I no longer like that song. And I want to try and recapture some of the money I spent on that song. I would right. like to sell that song to my buddy who really likes that one and hasn't purchased it yet. And I'm like, well, you know what? I'll sell it for 50 cents. I bought it for a dollar. Even though there's no real depreciation in digital content the way right. there is in physical content. Mm-hmm. But I can't really do that. And I can see why it doesn't make sense from in a digital perspective. And the main reason for that is, again... Digitally, we can make copies of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I can make a copy of a song that I own, sell the copy. I still have the original, and I'm making money, and I can undercut the the legitimate copyright holder. Right. So if Amazon, for example, is selling a song at at a dollar twenty nine, and mm-hmm. I buy a purchase copy that song, or I buy that song for a dollar twenty nine, but I start selling it for fifty cents, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't take long for me to recapture my costs, and then I'm undercutting Amazon, and then Amazon's not making money off that song, and. You can see where you can see where the foundation is for DRM for the copy protection element of DRM. Right, right. Uh, the problem is that the implementation of DRM sometimes goes a little too far. Uh, do, did you want to talk about Sony specifically? Uh, I, I do, but uh, I was going to mention one other thing that's missing from this transaction going on that you were mentioning. Oh, sure, sure. And that's trust. Let's say Jonathan wants to sell his MP3 to me. And I'm willing to pay him the 50 cents for it. And we're going to do everything completely above board. Jonathan says, I don't want to listen to this MP3 anymore. As soon as I send you the copy, I'm deleting it from my computer. Technically, that would be essentially like selling me a copy of a used book. He no longer has that book. He has sold it to me, and I've given him whatever he wants for it. And that would be the right of first sale. Um, what what the uh, producers here are doing, the publishers of music or movies or what you know, software, whatever, um, they don't trust us to do that. And you know, I'm sure in a lot of cases that probably is well founded, um, yeah. because honestly, Jonathan could say, "Oh, you know what? I'm tired of this MP3 here, Chris. You can have it for fifty cents, and I pay him fifty cents. He sends me a copy of it, and." Well, what if he doesn't delete it from his machine? Then we're doing exactly what they're afraid that we're doing. Now we have duplicated the program, and he has charged me money for it. 
So he is making money off of something that was somebody else's, and he kept his original copy. Right. So they don't they don't trust people, and like I said, some people are going to do that. Some people are not. So there there's an element of trust here. They don't trust people to do this, which is why we're still relying on copy protection. But as you pointed out, some people, like Sony uh, did a few years ago, have taken it to an extreme. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Sony did? Well, uh, basically back in, I guess around 2005 or so, Sony BMG Music Entertainment, uh, sold some different, uh, music CDs by a, a few different artists. Um, and, uh, as soon as you put the CD in a computer, what it would do would be to install what's called a rootkit on the computer. And basically, it's a, it, it was a piece of software that was running underneath the surface. It's not like you it said, hey, hold on a second, I'm installing a program on your machine. You wouldn't know it was being installed. You wouldn't know it was running. The average person speaking, I mean, obviously someone discovered it. But uh, what was going on was they were installing this rootkit in there, and the point of it was to... Uh, manage copy protection. They wanted to make sure that you weren't going to duplicate that CD and give it to, you know, the music to someone else. The problem is the rootkit, uh, provided quite a bit of access to computers and, uh, and basically was a backdoor to hackers getting access to your system. And again, the average person is not going to know that software is on there. Right. And they got caught. Yeah, so Sony, what, what Sony did was went well beyond just ensuring that this music wasn't going to be distributed illegally. What Sony did was allowed for a, a, a remote access to your machine, um, and the the root of all of this, not the root <laughs> kit, but the root of it all was that Sony did not trust its customers. No. And the other thing that that gets people upset is not just that that the these companies aren't trusting their their customers but that mm-hmm. um that it's a it's a relatively small percentage of people uh among all customers who actually engage in illegal behavior yeah but everyone gets affected by it that's right so everyone is being punished for the the behavior of a small percentage of users and digital rights management can go beyond just preventing you from making copies for example um, for video games or computer games, there might be protection there where you can install that game on a limited number of systems before it will not let you install it again. Well, mm-hmm. again, we're getting to the point of this, this, uh, you, you know, they're limiting how you can use this, this, uh, this product. Mm-hmm. And again, you can kind of understand why. You know, they don't want you to go and install it on all of your friends' computers so that everyone has a copy of the game without buying it. But on the flip side, if you are someone who updates his or her computer on a regular basis, before long, you can no longer play that game, even though you purchased it. That's right. Um, like, if you got rid of those computers, then you that's it. That game is useless to you. You cannot install it on your current system. And uh, so... This, this opens up lots and lots of doors for people to come in and say that DRM is really not fair. Um, I, I mentioned before the idea of fair use and making a backup copy. Here's another mm-hmm. big example of where DRM has uh, got people upset. So there's the, the, the digital 
see, see if I get this right. It's DMCA, Digital Management Copyright Act. Digital right? Millennium Copyright Millennium Act. Copyright Act, yes, thank you. I knew I was going to mess up the M. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was uh, passed in 1998. Yes. I remember the year. I just can't remember what the darn thing is called. Um, so DMCA, the, the whole idea of this was to provide companies the level of protection they wanted so that if anyone were to try and circumvent uh, copyright protection, they could be punished to extreme <laughs> extents. I don't think that's unfair to say that they could because I think you could be uh, fined up to $150,000 per incident of copyright infringement. Right. So, Which for the average person is going to be pretty... Uh Pretty severe. Well, yeah, $150,000 for anyone. I don't care who you are. Bill Gates would not say, like, $150,000? Eh. I mean, that's that's a lot of money. So even if you can afford it, that doesn't mean that you want to. No. Um, But at any rate, so one of the things about DRM is that uh, while it's still legal for you to create a backup copy of whatever it is you've purchased in order for you to, to have it in case something happens to the original, mm-hmm. it is not legal for you to circumvent any kind of di- digital rights management. Right. Copyright protection. So, in other words, if you purchase a DVD, and you, even if you have the the uh, technology to make a copy of that DVD, you can't make legally a backup copy of that device because it would require you to circumvent the DRM. Right. So y- your fair use rights are trumped by the rights of the copyright holder. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, it's illegal to even create a device that can circumvent the DRM. Right. It's it's against the law. So you even if you tried to create a, a code or whatever, in order for you to make your legitimate backup file, um, just making that code, even if you've never run the code, even if you've never actually used it to break DRM, just creating it is against the law. Yeah, the uh, Real Networks, the company Real Networks uh, sort of ran into that problem with Real DVD, which was its DVD copying software. And basically they said, sure, you'd like to make copies to run on your portable media players that, uh, you know, like, for example, an iPad. They, they didn't specifically mention that. Or uh, an iPhone or an Android-powered device. You'd like to make a copy of your movies? Sure, we have software that will help you do that. And then you can make a backup copy or you can watch copies of the stuff you bought. And uh, Hollywood essentially brought suit against real networks and said, uh, no, this violates the DMCA. And uh, the courts essentially upheld that, uh, agreed with them, and there is no real DVD for sale. Um, but, you know, it looks pretty promising as far as, as those prog- programs go. But, you know, essentially... It, the level of trust would have been the issue there. You know, right. they would have had trusted people to do that. And now that there's that legislation, um, it's not just here in the United States either. Uh, Canada's uh, Bill C-32 um, basically has included that same provision that if yes. you, if you yes. are trying to circumvent copy protection in order to make your legitimate backup copy, that you may not do that. So as long as they don't put copyright protection on their products, then you can make a backup copy. But no one's going to not put copyright protection on their products. So you're kind of, it's almost like your right to make a backup copy doesn't exist at all. It might as well be. It's effectively, you can't make that backup copy legally. Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I should, we should wrap this up pretty soon here, but, yeah. uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask you if you remembered another name from our uh, uh, copy protection past. Do you remember Plays for Sure? 
No, I do not. Microsoft had uh, was was selling music for a while uh-huh. and uh, used the plays for sure format. And um, the plays for sure format was sort of like uh, Apple's. Uh, you know, it's, it had a, a layer of information encoded into the file that it said, you know. Oh, yes, you are indeed Jonathan Strickland, the person that bought this file. Listen to it as many times as you like. Um, well, that was fine until Microsoft decided to eliminate the service, and then there was no longer anything to validate that DRM. So right. anybody who bought files with the place for sure DRM embedded in it, when Microsoft decided to abandon that line of uh, revenue, those people, you know, they said, Microsoft said, you only have a certain amount of time to back these up. And then you could still only listen to them in limited circumstances. Right. And once, you know, a- after that, those machines die, that's it. Yeah, you, you won't be so, able to access those files anymore. That's, that's another and issue, And that's, that's not the sa- only one that's ever done that. Yeah, and, no, Yahoo had the same problem. And we'll, I'll, I'll close on this. I'll, I'll mention one other example. The sure. one that I think is just absolutely insane is Ubisoft. Ah, uh, yes. With mm-hmm. their, their software where the only way you could play the game, uh, and it was a single-person shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're playing by yourself on your computer. The only way you could play is if your computer was also hooked up to the internet to yeah. connect to their DRM servers yep. to va- to make sure that the, the copy of the game you were playing was valid, which meant that if you lost your internet connection for any reason, you could not play the game, even though it was not a multiplayer game. It wasn't an online game. The only reason you had to be online was just to make sure that you hadn't copied the, per- the game. Exactly. And that, I think, shows the true... Uh, that's probably not even the furthest extent we're going to see DRM go to. And I'm not even saying that all DRM is bad. I'm just saying that no, the, I mean, the implementations that we've seen so far have been short-sighted and, again, punish the average customer, not the pirate. They're draconian. Draconian is an, a good word for it. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, they want to get paid, and that's okay. You know, it's just that uh, they, they do uh, restrict people who are legitimately using uh, the whatever it is for their you know their legal within their legal rights. That's true. So again, it's all about rights and what rights you have as a consumer as well. And you have the right to write us. Yes, if you'd like to. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Also, remember we have a Twitter feed and a Facebook feed. You can find both of those if you search for Tech Stuff HSW on respectively Twitter and Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you and we will talk to you again really soon if you're a tech stuff fan be sure to check us out on twitter tech stuff hsw is our handle and you can also find us on facebook at facebook.com slash tech stuff hsw for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com and be sure to check out the new tech stuff blog now on the howstuffworks homepage Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Pereira. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.